Welcome to the Erickson Covenant Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us today. We confess that we don't have all the answers, but as a community, we seek to find and follow Jesus and to discover daily the life he has always wanted for us. We hope this message will be encouraging and will inspire you to take the next steps on your spiritual journey. If we can help you in any way, please connect with us. The easiest way is through our website at ericksoncovenant.ca. Let's get started. Well, we continue today with our series, Generation Jesus, where we've been exploring the last couple chapters of this letter of 1 John. We've been seeing key characteristics of Jesus' followers emerge from these letters. We're almost done, and today we're looking at how Generation Jesus exudes humble confidence. Not arrogance, not brash, but a kind of settled, peaceful, reassured knowing that informs what we do, how we love, what we say, how we think, informs who we are. And we need this, you and I. We need this kind of humble confidence. And it's my hope and my prayer for us today that we will leave this time of teaching, this time of worship, more humble, but also more confident so that we will live as the generation of Jesus. We're going to discover today that there are three reasons why we can be humbly confident. And then what we can do about it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for gathering us today, here again, to learn from your word. We've had this time of worship together to sing and express to you how great you are. And now we sit ready to receive what you have for us. Would you, through your word today, guide us into deeper humility and into greater confidence. In your name we pray. Amen. In 1 John 5, 13 to 15, we hear these words. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. The first reason that we're humbly confident is because we've got eternal life. You heard it, right? He's writing so that we know we have eternal life. John wants us, his readers, to know this. He's been reassuring of this all along in a variety of ways. That because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done, because he's come in the flesh and stepped into our place, died and rose again, because he's forgiven us, because he's brought us into the family of God, we are alive. We've received eternal life. And in the writings of John, both in his gospel, one of the four stories about Jesus, as well as in these little letters, the phrase eternal life is kind of a code word. It's a, it's a word for everything we get through Jesus. It covers a lot of things. Adoption into God's family. 
the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, the dawning of new creation, our rescue from slavery. Eternal life covers our freedom that has been given to us, won by Jesus, a complete forgiveness through his atoning sacrifice. It also covers our unity in the body of Christ, our renewed minds in Christ, our resurrection that is coming. Everything is captured in these words, eternal life. To say we've got eternal life, though, has sometimes been misunderstood. It's been thought of as only some kind of a future destination, as though eternal life was as though we'd had some kind of advance ticket that had been purchased for us and slipped into an envelope for an upcoming trip. And we kind of leave it up on the shelf and we kind of look at it every once in a while. We just hold on to that ticket until the time comes when we can finally get on the bus or the plane and go. Eternal life, in this perspective, becomes like this prepaid ticket to heaven that we get when we die. But that actually distorts the reality of what Jesus has done for us and the gift of eternal life that is true because of him. Eternal life in the scripture, eternal life in the writings of John, describes a new creation reality that has already begun in Jesus Christ, that continues now and is active in us here. Me, you, us, in our world, transforming us day by day, and spreading throughout the world and sweeping up all of God's creation, propelling us together, but propelling us forward into God's good future, which, yes, includes the time coming when we die and perhaps a short-term stay in a place that we've dubbed heaven, but really looks beyond to the time when heaven comes down to earth, as we see at the end of Revelation, also written by John, and we are all resurrected in Christ with new resurrected bodies on a renewed, created earth. Eternal life, then, is really about a quality thing that has begun in Christ and is going to get better and better until the fullness comes. There's a vibrancy to it, a wholeness to it, that now we have by the Spirit because of Jesus, and is being generated for more and more and more people, more and more nations, more and more time as God brings it into effect. And John wants us to know, to get this down deep, that this eternal life that we have shapes who we are now, how we live, how we think, how we pray, how we engage, how we serve, the very way we approach the world, the very way we measure what's happening, the very way we evaluate our own actions and our own attitudes, it comes down to this. We've got eternal life. Which makes us humble, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. When we really consider all that God has given to us in Jesus, we stand amazed. We're wowed by this. We know it's not because of something that we have done. We're not smart enough. We're not good enough. And yet God has done this for us. It's incredibly humbling to be given the gift of eternal life through Jesus. It, it, it brings us to a place where we just stand in awe of who God is. But it also gives us confidence. Because if this is true, 
if all the things that we've been discovering and seeing just in this little letter of 1 John, all of this is true because of Jesus, what could we possibly be afraid of? I mean, what could really stop us? It's the phrase we hear in another letter written by Paul. If God is for us, who could be against us? Knowing that we have eternal life makes us humble and confident. That's the first reason. Leads us to the next reason we have for humble confidence. Yes, because we've got eternal life in Jesus, we also have instant access with the Father. We're humbly confident because of this. We read in 1 John 5.14, the confidence we have in approaching God, which is part of a larger phrase, but worth paying attention to right here, because this is no small thing. We can confidently stroll into God's presence because we belong, because we have eternal life. Remember the invitation in the letter, the New Testament letter that was written to the Hebrews? Knowing we've got eternal life through Jesus, knowing that he's our great high priest, knowing all that he has done for us, we're told, let us then, or invited actually, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's Hebrews 4, 16. Approach with confidence. Because of Jesus, we've got instant preferred lifetime access to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the creator of heavens and earth, the sovereign over all of history. And when we walk in on him, we don't cower in fear. We call him Father. All because of Jesus. All because we've got eternal life. We've got instant access. You know, on the Alpha Course, Nikki Gumbel tells this great story that comes down to us from the American Civil War. As a result of a family tragedy, a soldier had been given permission to have a hearing with the president because he wanted to request an exemption from military service so he could go home and serve his family in their time of need. But when he arrived at the White House, he was refused entry, and he was sent away. Dejected, not knowing what he was going to do, this soldier went and sat in a nearby park. And as he was sitting in this park, a young boy noticed him. You look unhappy. What's wrong? This boy asked. And so the troubled soldier found himself pouring his heart out to this boy. The boy listened for a while. Then he seemed to make a decision. And he got up and he said to the soldier, look, come with me. And so, unsure of what was going on, this dejected soldier followed this boy who led him back to the White House, but this time they went around the back. None of the guards seemed concerned. No one tried to stop them. Even the generals and the high-ranking government officials that they went past just sort of nodded and let them go. The soldier was amazed. I mean, what's going on here? Finally, they came to the presidential office, and without knocking, They waltzed right into the West Wing, and the young boy opened the door to the Oval Office and walked straight in. There stood Abraham Lincoln, deep in conversation with his Secretary of State. The soldier found himself holding his breath. What's going to happen? But the moment they walked in, 
Abraham Lincoln turned to the boy and said, Yes, Todd, what can I do for you? The soldier had access because of the sign. Todd said, Dad, this soldier needs to talk to you. Jesus gives us access. We have eternal life because of who he is and what he's done. And as a result, we've got instant, unparalleled access, audience with the King of Kings. We can waltz right into the presence of the Father, day or night, rain or shine, busy or not busy, and find a ready hearing with the Father himself. What a great story of access, isn't that? But the real truth of our access goes even deeper because we don't remain random soldiers or outsiders, but rather through Jesus Christ, we've been adopted right into the family. We've been made sons and daughters forever, given keys to the back door and the privilege of instant access. When we stride into the throne room of God, he looks directly at us and says, yes, Tom, yes, Glenna, Yes, Dave. Yes, Colleen. What can I do for you? If that doesn't give us confidence in approaching God, I don't know what would. And when we remember that it's all because of God's passionate love for us, we're humbled by that, aren't we? We're grateful. We're wowed. Even as we do, burst through the door into the presence of God, confident that he will receive us. So, reason number one, we're humbly confident, we've got eternal life. Reason number two, we're humbly confident, we've got instant access. Those reasons right there should just blow any hesitancy or arrogance that we might carry. But there's more. Reason number three. We are humbly confident because we've got God's best last couple, uh, verse and a half that we read, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. This access is more than just a God who lets us hang around. It's access to a Father who hears us and who responds to us, to what we've asked him for. But this is kind of tricky. Did you catch the phrase? If we ask according to his will? We should explore this a bit. I mean, we're told that God hears us, and that gives us great confidence. But we're also told that there's a bit of a qualification. We need to ask, but we need to ask for the right thing. We need to ask in the right way. We need to ask according to his will. Now, we can approach God with confidence because we are his kids. But that confidence takes on that Humility, that meekness, aware that we don't always know, do we, what we ought to be asking for. We don't even know what we truly need. We might think we know, but really, when we're honest, we don't really know what we need. We don't know always, maybe often, what God actually wants, what would be best or truly good in this situation or for that person. And so the truth is, even in our confidence, we need humility in our prayer. We need humility in our access. 
We have such limited understanding, don't we, of what's happening, even in our own lives, even in our own hearts, let alone the complexities in other families, other situations, and what's going on in the world around us. And so, yes, we need to confidently ask, but with a humble awareness of our own frail and incomplete understanding. So how can we do this? Because uh, I, I, I don't want us to somehow hear this and then have all the confidence sort of drain from us. How can we still remain humbly confident in this promise that God hears our prayer? Well, let's take a moment and talk about this. This is the first time, not the first time, that John has assured us that God answers prayer, responds to what we say according to some certain conditions. Our confidence in prayer isn't just a blanket promise that anything that pops into my mind on a Tuesday afternoon or a Thursday morning, if I just voice it to God, he'll immediately give it to me, right? We know that's true. He's way too wise. He's way too good. We should be thanking God that he doesn't do that. In John 14, 14, Jesus said, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Which means that whatever we're praying, we are being told to ask it in the name of Jesus, as though we're standing there and saying, whatever I'm saying to you, God, Jesus is in agreement with me on it. I'm I'm, I'm saying it in his name, on his behalf, even for his sake. I can say that with confidence. It's quite a powerful truth, isn't it? I mean, that's a confidence booster for sure. We're given permission to speak in the name of Christ, but it's also a bit of a check for us. William Barclay, in his helpful little commentary, said, one of the supreme tests for any desire is, can we say to Jesus, give me this for your sake, in your name? A prayer of which we can honestly say that will be granted. It's a good thing to ask. Is this something that aligns? Is this something I could confidently say in the name of Jesus? Please hear my prayer. But more than just praying in his name, we're also told to pray in the context of a growing relationship with Jesus. In John 15, 7, Jesus goes on to say, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In other words, prayer is not something that we can adequately express or rightly even expect a response when it's not nurtured within this ongoing relationship with Jesus. We, we are connected, and in many ways, true prayer is actually an expression of this ongoing abiding or remaining in Christ. So much prayer is just being with Jesus, not asking anything of him. So that when we do ask for something, when we do intercede for something, it actually flows from that established relationship, that knowing and sharing with Jesus, where his character and his concerns, his mind and his heart, we've been spending time with him. We've been shaped by him. And in that relationship, that mutual sharing where the Holy Spirit is is revealing who Jesus is to us and and our own desires and our, our own understanding is being transformed in that 
time, in that encounter, in that growing relationship, then our prayers are more likely to be aligned with his purpose and his desire. Again, from William Barclay, he said, the closer we live to Christ, the more we shall pray aright. The more we pray aright, the greater the answer to prayer. There's a real connection between our prayers and the response to our prayers and this relationship. It's not just a checklist or, or something God just throws at us, but rather prayer is this invitation into this relationship. And that matters more to God than anything. John also tells us, though, that obedience is important. Our obedience affects our prayers. We've already heard that in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, 21-22, we read that we have confidence, same word used as we've, we're reading today, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. In the context of 1 John, doing what pleases God and keeping his commands always comes around to loving obedience, to serving one another, to loving our brothers and sisters. So hear this rightly. It's not as though God simply says, do what I say or I won't listen to you. But rather, it's that so much of what he says ways that God is going to respond even to our prayers is going to take a responsiveness from us. That as God speaks to us, even answering our prayer, we need to be in a position of ready obedience, ready to respond, ready to be part of the solution that God is going to bring, even the answer to our own prayers. The purpose of prayer is so much about God loving us and changing us in relationship with him that this responsiveness, this obedience is part of it. And so it's the context within which God is responding, answering, and we can be assured of his response. And so it's in light of all that, praying in the name of Jesus, nurturing this vibrant connection with him, and obediently responding to all he has told us to do, which usually comes around to loving people. That's the context in which we come to this passage today, where we're told that we can have confidence in God's response as we pray according to his will. You know, Jesus taught us in his famous prayer to pray, thy will be done. Thy will. Not thy will be changed or thy will be mine. And the traditional add-on to the Lord's Prayer that we typically end with, you know, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory. We pray, thine is the kingdom, not mine is the kingdom. There's something about prayer and praying according to the will of God that is always a laying of our own will down, where we are responsive and obedient. We desire God's will to be done. That That prayer, at its very root, is about getting so tight with God so tight with the Father, by the Spirit, through the Son, that our very words and our minds, our hearts and our prayers, align with His desire. We're praying in sync with Him. Let me quote Barclay one more time. He had some really great stuff to say this week. He said, True prayer is not asking God for what we want, but rather, it's asking God for what He wants. Did you hear that? Prayer, true prayer, is not asking God for what we want, but rather it is asking God for what He wants. 
And as we do, we discover this amazing truth that God hears and responds to us as we are hearing and responding to him. This relationship is the context for our confidence and our humility. Today, I want to talk with Peter Hambry. I want to explore with him a few questions that relate to this confidence we can have in prayer. Welcome, Peter, and thanks for joining us today for today's interview. I want to start off with the opening question. What gives you confidence when you pray? Uh, I think just knowing that God is there. So so it's not a... um, uh, Well, I guess it's more than there's a God who is there. It's a God who uh, listens Mm -hmm. and a God who's interested in me so so what that means is that in prayer I'm not always um, I don't always have God in front of me the way it, it that all those things are real very real so sometimes when I pray it's it's not so uh, it, it's like a habit but usually um, I pray because I have something on my mind and I know God is listening. So it's, so that comes from, uh, I guess, from experience and from just having thought about the scriptures a lot and thought about the nature of the world a lot and just having that confidence that God is there. Um, so there've been times when that confidence hasn't been there a couple of times in my life, but most of the time, it's there, at least in the background of the way I live life. Beautiful. I think it's obviously one of the most profound truths of God as he's revealed himself through scripture and through Jesus is that he hears us. It's astonishing. Astonishing yeah. to know that. So how have you in your life figured out how to pray according to God's will? That's one of the challenges we hear today from First John, that anything we ask according to his will how have you figured out when you're praying according to God's will or how does that work out for you? Well, you know, a lot of the time, I'm not sure that I do have it worked out. Hmm. So, um, but, but fundamentally it, it has to do with knowing that God is, um, of knowing God. So in other words, just meditating on the scriptures a lot listening to sermons a lot, just having learned about God. So if, if, if that is constantly being renewed in my mind as to who God is, then, then that means I must know a little bit about what God, um, what the will of God is. So when, when, when Jesus said, what you pray in my name, which I, I, I take to be as uh, on my behalf. In other words, you know what I want. Mm-hmm. So if you pray with what I want, because you're my disciple and you know my concerns you're from, from the scriptures and that's been every day going in, then, uh, then that gives a confidence. So many things that I pray about, I pray just because I think God is a good God 
and he's listening, but I'm not quite sure whether it's God's will. Some things it's very obvious that it's God's will. Um, I think there's, there's, so there's one other thing that comes in then, besides though, besides this basic knowledge of who Jesus is, just reading about him lots and lots, reading the scriptures all the time. So you know what Jesus' interests are. But beyond that, there's something about the Holy Spirit giving me a confidence. And that is something that is not a constant part of my prayer. Um, it, it's like there's, there's, there's two le- three levels of prayer, maybe. One level of prayer, just thinking, well, this is a concern of mine. God, I'm bringing it before you. And it's not uh, not really thinking too much about, okay, well, does God, is this really God, what God wants? Then there's another layer of prayer where I know it's God's will, but it's, for example, praying for a person that they'll come to Christ. So I know it's God's will that they'll come to Christ, but I also know he doesn't force them. And so you've got this kind of uncertainty there. So knowing that you can pray, generally pray, this is according to God's will. Pray that God will increase the church. Pray that God will bring this person to Christ. Pray that this person will know his will. Um, Know that Tom will preach well on Sunday. It's (laughs) It's kind of knowing that that's God's will and at the same time not being sure. Yeah. Uh, what the outcome is that w- even though God is interested in that. And then there's a third level. And this is when, um, which is not a, a common occurrence, but it's a, an occasional occurrence for me, where I have a deep kind of burden mm-hmm. for something. Mm-hmm. And it's... Uh, as I'm in prayer and thinking about it and asking God about it, it's an intense, it's a strong burden. And when that burden is there, it's, it seems like it's the Holy Spirit who is giving me that burden or I'm in touch with God on that thing. So it goes beyond that uncertainty to another level of certainty. So not just certainty, but... Um, I see the outcome. Yeah. So, so, so that's not an everyday occurrence. It's just, a, and uh, maybe I could give you one example on this. The first time I experienced this was, um, I'd been a Christian maybe eight months, uh, something like that, a few months old. I was in residence at university and uh, my cousin, who was a, a friend of mine, he, we'd, we'd got together over the years several times. He came to, uh, this was a year later than me, but he came to be in the same residence as me. And so, so I was having a bit of contact with him. He didn't know I'd become a believer, or maybe I'd told him, but I hadn't talked with him very much. And I had this started thinking about who I should be witnessing to and thinking about my cousin, Michael, and it became uh, one of these burdens. So 
I couldn't even, I like there were meetings I was supposed to be going to. I didn't go to the meeting. Instead, I was praying and looking for an opportunity to talk to him. So I dropped everything to do this. Hmm. So it was the a kind of intense kind of prayer, very much involved. And when I did went go and talk to him, it was kind of um it was kind of, oh, God's doing all the work. It's here. He's just ready to become a believer. And it was just very quick, very clear. So so that's the kind of that kind of prayer that for me is an unusual prayer but when you say how do you know it's God's will that's the kind of prayer where I feel that the Holy Spirit is is directing me in prayer that's great Peter I, I hear what I hear there is this you know to pray according to the will of God that's right and powerful and good but what you were talking about is almost another level of like not just praying according to the will of God but almost the sense in which God is saying Peter Tom come and work with me on this like we are you're syncing up with the heart of god for a particular person or a particular situation and um god is able to work in a powerful but mysterious way but a real way um yeah. in to move things that are beyond our ability to you know just give the smart answer or say the right thing or you know that, that god is at work through us which which actually lends back again to the confidence we can have in prayer but also the humility you know today we're talking about the humble confidence that we have there's a real confidence god hears us god responds but also a humility because we recognize that you know he's using us in a way that kind of defies um description sometimes (laughs) how is it that 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 god calls us into this and does stuff with it we don't know but it's beautiful that he does so yeah yeah well thank you for sharing with us today peter i know this will be an encouragement to everyone as we continue our message on being humbly confident. Okay, it's a pleasure. So where's all of this going? John takes his assurances of answered prayer, and now he applies it directly to our life as a church, our relationship as brothers and sisters. He challenges us to take this humble confidence and actually use it for each other. Listen to where he goes in verse 16 and 17. Which admittedly are difficult verses. You're going to hear this. And we're going to explore it so that we hopefully understand it a little more. But this is how he begins. He said, if you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those who sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. This is a fun one, isn't it? I decided to take a little time and go over this because this is actually one of the verses that really sticks out in 1 John as a super confusing, what in the world did he mean? But there's something important here that helps us, and I hope it'll increase our humility and confidence as we move forward. There's a lot of different ways, some theories and ideas of what's going on here. What is this sin unto death, and what is John talking about? The best understanding is this, that I can figure anyway. John urges us, first of all, to intercede for each other. 
this humble confidence that we have that we can enter in the throne room of God and we have access to the Father and we, what we pray for in his will, we get answered, all of that. What John is saying here is use that for each other. Pray for one another. If you see a brother or a sister who are in trouble, pray for them, intercede for them, and God will give them life. There's again, it's assurance of take your confidence, your ability to walk in on God anytime, day or night, and pray for your brothers and sisters. Use that confidence for the sake of your, the body of Christ, for the church. Not in a judgmental way. Not in a way that's condemning, uh, you know, an ugly attitude toward brothers and sisters, but rather out of a grace-filled, deeply compassionate, responding, laboring in prayer for each other, that God will give life where there perhaps is hurt or, or there's perhaps something going on that's really causing damage to, to them, to you, to a friend or neighbor, to pray to use the humble confidence that we have and apply that to one another. And then know that God will give them life. This is direct application to what John has already said. And I think we could just stop right there and say, okay, how does that apply to us? What do I do with this? Admittedly, it's kind of a weird passage. Some stuff we're going to come in a minute, figure that out. But right now we stop and say, okay, yeah, there's actually a clear command here. I am supposed to pray for my brother's and sisters who are in trouble. A lot of times we judge. A lot of times we look away. A lot of times we gloss over. The challenge here is to be able to pray in God's presence for one another. And so who is it that you and I need to be praying for? Who, who is it that God is calling you to, to actually raise up, a brother or a sister who are struggling, who are in trouble, who maybe are even caught in sin that's hurting them. Pray for them. The promise is that God will give them life. Be confident on their behalf because God will hear your prayer. He wants to give them life. That's his will. Let's pray together for each other. But what about this sin that leads to death thing? What does he mean? And he says, and I'm not saying you should pray about that. Well, two things, just briefly. I want to make this a little bit clearer. I think it'll help us. One is this cryptic reference to the sin that leads to death. When it's said in the context of John's overall letter, it's very likely that he's referring to this settled rejection of who Jesus is that has been characterized by these antichrists, these false prophets. It's very likely he's maybe referring to people that have been caught up in this false teaching about who Jesus is isn't, who are denying that he's the Son of God, denying that he's come in the flesh, denying our need for his atoning sacrifice. That he's looking at that and he's saying, that sin leads to death. Why? Because it leads away from Jesus. The sin of looking Jesus in the face and saying, no, I don't believe it. I reject it. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm fine without you. Which, considering that it's only through Jesus' eternal life comes. It is a sin that leads to death. I think that's probably one of the best ways of understanding what this sin, because it doesn't, he doesn't really explain it, right? So probably one of the best ways of understanding that. So why would John then not command prayer for them? Why does he say, you know, I'm not saying you should pray about that? In the context, he seems to be saying, look, this sin is not the same kind of sin that 
we see in the lives of brothers and sisters who follow Jesus and believe in Jesus and are, are caught in something that's hurting them. It's not the same kind of sin. It's, it's not a sin that we should just pray that God will sort of overlook it, take care of it, uh, cover it, forgive it, because this is a sin itself that rejects the whole premise. It rejects forgiveness itself. It, it leaves them in a place of there's no hope for them. He's saying, I don't think you should pray about that. Two things to see here. He, he is likely in a kind of polemical mindset. John is. You've seen it through the book where he's very stark and very um, sharp in his response to this um, understanding or this rejection of Jesus. He's calling the true believers, the church, to push away from people who are posing as spiritual brothers and sisters but are in fact rejecting Jesus. He's saying, don't pray for them the way you pray for a brother and sister who are caught in sin because it's not the same thing. But the second thing here to notice, it's important, is that he doesn't say, don't pray for them. He doesn't say it's wrong to pray for them. He doesn't say we should never pray for the hard-hearted or the prodigal or the deceived. If you look closely, he simply says, in contrast to I'm commanding you to pray for your brothers and sisters who are caught in sin, I'm I'm not saying you should pray for them. It's like kind of a passive way of saying, I'm not commanding you to pray for those guys. That's a different kind of sin that they need forgiveness for. So the question then, of course, is should we pray for people who are rejecting Jesus? Well, of course we should. And there are lots of other scripture would support that. But what John wants us to see, and I think is fairly clear if we take him in this whole context, is that we are going to be praying not simply that that sin of rejecting Jesus would somehow be, you know, set aside, but rather that these people would come to an understanding of who Jesus clearly is, that they would turn away from that sin and follow Jesus, embracing him truly, which we know people have. I mean, Paul himself famously, was set completely against Jesus, denying who he was, rejecting who he was, persecuting the church because of what they believed about Jesus. And what happened to him? Well, he was completely turned around and became one of the greatest advocates for Jesus in church times. Of course that happens all the way down through history. But what we should be praying for is repentance, praying that they would turn away from the sin that leads to death and come to the only one in whom they can receive eternal life, and that is Jesus. All of that to land here. As Jesus' followers, we are humbly confident that the God who has given us eternal life, we have access to him, and we can receive his best for us and for others, and we're being challenged here at the end to use that access, that privilege, that confidence to actually pray for life to come to each other, for life to come to the church, for life to come where sin has ravaged and torn people apart and kept people apart and caused bitterness and unforgiveness to destroy relationships, that we are to pray into those situations, that God's life will come, that change will result as Jesus gets in and brings his atoning, loving, caring, compassionate life. We have a good Father. We have a powerful Lord. We have an empowering Holy Spirit. And you bring all of that together as he changes us as he aligns us, as he invites us to follow him and responds to us along the way that his will really will be done in us on earth, in the lives of 
the world and others around us because he loves us. He hears us. And he wants to see that change come. My hope and prayer for each one of us this week and in the weeks ahead is that we would be this generation of Jesus. Humble and yet confident. Thanks for listening in today. We hope you feel encouraged and challenged. If you know someone who would benefit from what you have heard today, please share this podcast. For more information, or if you have questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for Erickson Covenant Church.